Hey there, thanks for tuning in to St. John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. Uh, so as we mentioned over the last uh, few weeks, we've been exploring um, what you might call the spiritual dynamics of the Christian life. All life, actually. Uh, dynamic is a great word. It's related uh, to the word dynamite, uh, of course. Uh, both of them uh, come from the Greek word dunamos, uh, which literally means power. And what we've seen is that the power in the Christian life, the thing that leads to dynamic change and growth and depth and substance is grace fueled repentance. And what goes with that, the other side of that same coin, faith. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. That's how we start as Christians. That's how you go on as a Christian all your life. Same pattern, nothing changes. You don't go on different from the way you start all the way through. And by now, I'm hoping we know what repentance is. It's not the surface level activation of the will which says, that was a bad thing, I'm really sorry about that, I'll try much harder not to do it next time. Of course, it is good to be sorry. And of course, it's good to try harder. But there's no power in it. There's no dunamos. Because our wills are not the core of us. Our hearts are, and our hearts are that which loves or desires or rejoices in what we find beautiful or excellent or glorious. And so the only repentance with any power in it, the only life-change efforts that have any sticking power in them, with any dynamite in them, well, it's going to be heart repentance. And so what's repentance? It's lifting the, the disordered desires of our hearts, lifting the over-desire of our hearts from something, some bad thing perhaps, or actually much more commonly, I think, a good thing that's overly desired, extracting our heart's desire from that thing and instead resting it in God. And the only thing that's powerful enough to do that, that the, to get us to do that, is the beauty and excellence of the grace of of Jesus Christ on the cross. That moment, that reality, that gift is of such captivating beauty, such divine excellence, such luminous glory that it alone is sufficient to capture the deepest loves of our hearts so that we let go of those inordinate desires, disordered desires that are always behind our sins. We began to see last week that this kind of repentance is an art, it's a knack. It's not automatic or mechanical. It's quite possible, don't you think, to be perfectly convicted that God loves you and forgives you and has adopted you, all of the great truths of the Christian gospel, and at the same time, somehow for those realities to not really be functioning for you. I mean, actually right on the ground. How is it that... One person can be hateful and, and bitter and still believe the Christian gospel with full conviction while another person gradually changes, as Paul puts it, from one degree of glory to another, gradually putting to death that hatred and, be, and bitterness and becoming a kinder and more generous person. Both believe. Why does one get stuck in bitterness and the other one not? And the reason is, because the art in heart repentance is to bring the grace of God into specific contact with those disordered loves, 
Think about a person lashing out when someone disrespects them. Uh, it's very easy to, to watch it happen. You, you, you maybe don't even need to watch someone else do it. Um, and it, it's, it's okay to say, yes, oh, golly, I did it again. I'm sorry, I was wrong, I'll change. I'll try much harder. But it's much more difficult to actually change, isn't it? You see, when someone lashes out at being disrespected, um, there's something going on in their hearts. There's a, there's a craving, a desire for um, respect specifically. Not, not being loved generally, not even being approved of generally, but something that's quite, quite particular, quite specific. There's a shape to it, a texture, respect. And the point that I'm trying to make is that it's only when the grace of God and the cross of Christ is brought into direct connection with that heart desire, that specific texture, when the fact that in Jesus Christ, God has shown you the ultimate respect, that he's taken you with utter seriousness, that Jesus bore the disrespect of everyone around him and ultimately even of God himself so that you can have the respect of a wearer of the crown of life it's only when the grace of God is fitted, you could even call it bespoke, to the contours of your heart, that then change happens. The, the craving that you have for the respect of others kind of just, it falls off you a bit like, like discarded clothes. It just it drops off you like water on grease paper because you have the respect of the God of the universe in the sacrifice of the cross of Christ, and that means you can change. You have actually changed, uh, in fact. The, the, the most fundamental thing about you has already changed because your heart has changed. And so the next time that disrespect from a colleague or a neighbour or a spouse will sting, right? it will sting. It's a, it is a thing. It's a real thing. It's a little thing. And so you're allowed to love it a little amount, and that means you can be Sad when you don't have it, a little amount, of course, it stings. But it won't get to your heart. And so you won't react badly. You'll have dunamos. You'll have the power of the grace of God at work in your life. And so today we wrap up this series by asking, well, what are the results of this approach to life change, to growth and and Repentance and faith. What happens when the kind of repentance that you practice is heart repentance? Because there's danger in what we're looking at, isn't there? One of, one of the dangers of setting ourselves to be a people of repentance is that we become not just righteous, but self-righteous. Not just moral, but moralistic. Not just pure, but puritanical. I'd suggest that this is exactly the pit into which our culture has tipped. Uh, a few decades ago, the way that the culture avoided self-righteousness was to bail out on morality altogether in what we called relativistic postmodernism. You remember those good old days? What was right for you was right for you. What was good for you was good for you. What was bad for you was bad for you. Just do whatever you like. So you can't be moralistic if you don't care about morals. Uh, you can't be self-righteous if there's no such thing as righteous. It was a, a neat move, but it couldn't last, and so it didn't. Um, it, it, was, uh, it was catastrophe. Now things are different. We live in a culture that has a remarkably clear morality, don't you think? 
It's the morality of what some scholars have called expressive individualism, which insists that everyone has a duty to access their deepest desires, right? Notice, by the way, can I just add a little footnote here? Doesn't that, who, who taught us that desire is what matters in a human experience? It was Jesus who did that. The culture just is catching up with Jesus here. So interesting that our contemporary culture actually has an alignment with the Bible here, and I think there's an opportunity in that. It takes God out of the picture, and so all that's left is your deepest desires, whatever they might be, and just live them out within boundaries. Um, Elsa in Frozen, remember? Let it go. Or, isn't it? Let it go? Let it be? Let it go. It was let it go. Yeah, because I said let it be once and I knew that was wrong. <laughs> let it go. Let all of those ridiculous expectations and conformism that's around us and all the expectations of others, let all that go and just look inside deep and be yourself. And don't ever stop anyone doing that. Don't you dare mess with that for someone else. That's their job and that's your job and that's your life. And it's wrong to try and interfere with that. Oh, you better believe there's a morality around at the moment which turns into immense moralism, a righteousness that's clear to everyone which turns into immense self-righteousness. And whenever there's self-righteousness in the house, there's hate and there's rage and there's polarisation and there's inability to understand, there's othering of others so that they're less than human, they get demonised and on and on it goes and you get the world that we're in. It's the politics of identity, the undoing of social fabric. How do you do morality without moralism? Because that's what we're into, repentance, right? It's being a better person. How do you do righteousness without self-righteousness? Now, of course, this is a problem not just for our culture, Oh, no, no. There's a Christian version of this as well, isn't there? Too often becoming a Christian or becoming a more deliberate, own-it-for-yourself Christian um, starts out as real joy of sin forgiven and love experienced and hope as solid and church as thrilling and, and you go on in the Christian life and it just seems to get more and more difficult. Some convince themselves that they've succeeded, they've stapled apples to the apple tree. I got this image from an author. It's, so, it's just so chillingly... Oh, golly. We all know that stapling apples to an apple tree is not going to work. It's external. It's fake. They wither because there's no internal connection between the apple and the tree and the sap and the roots. And you staple enough apples to your tree, it looks shiny enough, you decide that you're one of the very few self-disciplined people that managed to, to sort of avoid all the obvious sins. But it's almost impossible, if, if that's what you're doing, not to look down on others, to fall into righteousness with self-righteousness and so not actually righteous at all. Don't, this, of course, is what Christians are mostly accused of by the culture. Others, of course, know that stapling fruit to a tree isn't real and so they lose interest in that game. But the call to holiness of life is still there. It still presses. There doesn't seem to be any way forward. And so over time, the joy fades and the thrill departs and being a Christian becomes simply hanging on. Just hang in there. Grim. 
freedom of being justified by grace through this repentance and faith is gradually replaced by the slog of being transformed by the sheer hard work of bashing your way through the sticky treacle of sin. And the harder you try, the less progress you seem to make, and, and, and some just give up and say in their hearts, well, it's not going to change, nothing's really going to change, I'm not going to change. And then we have a phrase for it, ready? I'm not perfect, just forgiven. And that's wrong. And the word that's wrong in it is the word just. Oh, the first bit's true enough. I'm not perfect, but you're not just forgiven. And some even give up on Christ altogether. The heavy burden of trying and failing again and again just overwhelms them. And they say, forget it, I can't do it anymore. And, and what I'm suggesting is that it's this kind of needle to thread between righteousness without self-righteousness, of, of moral without moralism, of purity without puritanism, puritanical. It's that thread, that needle rather, that we've got to thread. And it's heart repentance that will enable us. It's grace from start to finish. Um, a friend of mine described the Christian life, which is just becoming more and more burdensome, as grace wrapped up in law. Grace wrapped up in law. It starts out as grace, but then it gets all wrapped up in, in just slog. And heart repentance is grace from first to last, start to finish. Grace wrapped up in grace. Because it's only this grace that really will change our hearts. It's only this grace that will really give us righteousness without self-righteousness. We can't do away with righteousness. God knows that, of course. And even the culture knows that now. But how do you have righteousness without self-righteousness? And I think Colossians chapter 3 shows us how this works. Because the apostle wants us to be just riveted by Jesus. Listen to how he puts it. So if you've been raised with Christ, the if there really is more a when, because rather, because you've been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, because you've died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. This is a wonderful... I mean, Colossians 3, 1 to 3, you, you, you print that on your, the back of your toilet, you know, bathroom door, and just let it marinate for you. It's a beautiful, beautiful passage, a life-defining passage, actually. Uh, and I want to highlight just four very quick things. First, notice the way that it speaks about our connection to Christ. So it's a given that he died and rose again. Okay, that's, that's clear. Everyone knows that. That's what we know. But, but Paul takes it a step further and tells us something that we might not know, which is when you entrust yourself to him, you also die and are raised, that his journey, his trajectory, his resume becomes your journey, your trajectory, your resume. What does it mean to, to die? I mean, obviously you haven't died. You're, well, you, anyone's moving a little bit, so no one's, you know. Here's, here's I think, what the apostle's getting here. It's, he's saying all the things that used to define your life, all the things that used to give meaning to your life, that constituted 
success or failure in life for you. In other words, all the objects that might serve as the ultimate affection of your heart, you have died to them. Uh, or, or to put it another way, you know that terrible, terrible phrase when uh, there's a complete breakdown of relationships, I might say, you are dead to me. Well, that, that's what the apostle's saying here. Those things are dead to you. They're dead to you as that which makes you you. Instead, Christ is who makes you you now. You've been raised to a new kind of life. And, and notice that what it's just Paul pushes it all the way. Christ is your life. Which leads into a second profound reality. He says, your life is hidden with him, because we know where Christ is. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's, he's, he's ascended. Um, and, and your life, because he is your life, your life is hidden with him there. It's, it's tucked away, safe and secure. It's unable to be threatened or challenged. It's immune to attack or denigration. And what that means is that all the things that might previously threaten your life, failure, weakness, or rejection by others, or financial stress, or whatever it might be, all of those things that might otherwise threaten your life, well, they aren't your life anymore. And so you can deal with them as the things they are rather than the idols that they can become. Money is just money. It's just money. It's not security. You wouldn't be so nutty as to think that, would you? Money? Security? No, Christ is my life. Christ is my security, not money. I'm utterly secure, and so you'll be able to be generous with your money. Doing a good job is just doing a good job. It doesn't define you because Christ defines you, and so you'll be able to keep your job in its place rather than let it take over your whole life. Your life is secure. It's hidden with him. It's safe. It can't be challenged. It can't be chipped away at or broken down or threatened. Which, which then leads to the third thing. When Christ appears, the apostle says, when he comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead, then, then there'll be a, hey, presto moment. Here's Andrew. I too will appear. You too will appear with him. It's like, here's the Andrew that always was. We didn't get to see much of it while he was on earth, but boom, here's Andrew. And you'll appear with him in glory, do you see? The last little clause, the last little phrase is so crucial. You'll appear with him in glory. You'll be revealed, is, the, is literally. Um, it's like there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a veil and then the bush gets taken off. And, Ta-da! Glory. That's who you are, actually. This is your destiny, to be the glorious version of you that you're created to be, not falling short of the glory of God. You remember that phrase? Not falling short of it, but raised to the full stature of that glory. That's the you that you are. And and so Paul has a a conclusion, given that Christ is your life, that Christ is at the right hand of the Father above, and that therefore you're safe with him. What makes all the sense in the world, in fact, the only thing that makes sense actually is to seek the things that are above, that the, the idea of above here is not um, geography, 
but, but sort of spiritual order. You, you're there with him. That's where your life is, in him. He is your life. And so what else would you do other than to seek those things, to live them out? The things of God, Christ things, because that's who your life is. That's where your life is. The, the word seek actually is a, is a very strong word. It's a, it's, um, a bit, the translation is a little weak here. Um, literally, the, the word, it's something like hunt down, like, like the way my dog goes after you know, its teddy bear. So you throw it away, and it goes and runs at it, it skids on the floor, smacks into the wall, it wants that bear. Seek like that, pursue, it's like a heat-seeking missile. Total dedication. It's a heart word, actually, zealotos. To seek with zeal, it's a heart word. It says, set your hearts on the things that are above, all the myriad ways that characterise the, the life of Christ, his glorious, beautiful holiness. What else would make sense? Paul's just capturing this grace renewal dynamic that we're talking about. This is who you are in him. This is your life. And so live out your life. Take your hearts off other stuff. You don't, they're not your life anymore. Christ is your life. So live Christ. And it's all grace, the death and resurrection of Jesus is all, all grace. Your inclusion in that so you too have died and been raised with him is equally all grace. So let me, let me um, just draw a little uh, a conclusion here. Do you see how the free of the gospel, the more transforming the gospel is? God does not do a bait and switch with you. It's really crucial to see this. It's not, look, you can be forgiven all the sins from the past, that's all done, free, just wiping that, you know, tearing it up, it's all gone. But now, get with the program. There's some standards, live up. That's a bait and switch. That's not the gospel. No, the free of the gospel, pure, undiluted, Christ died for us at the right time when we were sinners, freedom of the gospel. The free of the gospel, the more powerful it is to transform you, precisely because it's only something that's free that will actually captivate your heart's desires. Do you, do you, do you see this? If the gospel is a bait and switch, you'll hate God. You'll resent God. You might do it. You might just knuckle down because you sort of feel like you ought to and others around you are. But you'll hate God. A bait and switch will crush you. And it won't lead to real change anyway. It's only the freedom, the sheer glorious grace freeness of the gospel of God in Jesus Christ that will actually lead you to change. Because it's that freeness, that gospel, that is the most beautiful and love-captivating and therefore heart-changing and life-transforming thing that there is. So as you live out this dynamic, you won't suffer from the misery of grace wrapped up in law. That just grinds your soul down gradually over a lifetime. Instead, what there will be is this awesome, beautiful, deep righteousness without even a hint of self-righteousness. What I'm saying is that uh, I think one of the most precious results of this approach to life change, heart repentance, is that you'll more and more become that very rare kind of person, which is a person of real gentleness, 
and softness, and at the same time, a person of real strength and purity. And you'll know and have the spiritual resources not to trade off one against the other. Humility and boldness at the same time. Listen to how this vision of Christian character holds together as the apostle goes forward. What is it to seek to hunt down the things that are above? Verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, fornication and impurity and passion and evil desire and greed, which is idolatry. By now, it's no surprise, of course, that the sexual issues, which are the expression of some of the deepest human desires, are the first things that Paul identifies because, naturally enough, that's how disordered desire, first and foremost, takes form. Right? So this nonsense that the, you know, the Christians or the Bible or something is obsessed by sex. No, we just understand human beings. So put to death whatever in you is earthly, fornication and impurity and passion and evil desire, and greed. Uh, uh, evil desire, of course, is the epithumia word, that, that disordered desire of the heart. On account of these, the apostle says, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. Uh, these are the ways you also once followed while you were living that life. Now you must get rid of all such things, anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive language from your mouth. Kill that stuff. When John Owen, one of the great um, leaders of the English church in the 17th century, said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And Paul says, put it to death. Shoot it, kill it. But at the same time, verse 12, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, clothe yourselves with love which binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you're indeed called in the one body, and be thankful and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, I think what's so fascinating, I, think I sort of saw this this week as I was reflecting on these uh, verses. This section holds together profound purity, sexual, verbal, relational purity. In that sense, I think it's what we would call very conservative, don't you think? You read those first, the first few verses, they're very conservative. Very, very family values oriented. And precisely at the same time, humility and compassion and kindness towards others and forgiveness and, and space and generosity, which are, of course, typically concerns of the progressive. What's so beautiful about this vision of the Christian life is that it completely transcends all of those absurd tribal boundaries. They're not alternatives to each other when this is the kind of life change that you're pursuing. This is not the outer without the inner, just surface-level righteousness which leads to the kind of miserable arrogance that pushes oneself up in order to look down on others, outer without inner. But at the same time, nor is this inner without outer, a kind of compassion and humility that declines actually to get in the details of how life's actually lived in all its contours and com complications. And, and what I want us to see is it's only when the spiritual dynamic of heart repentance is at play in your life that this will actually work. Otherwise, you'll, you'll slide over to one side or the other and do we see that just a little bit in the culture around us? Of course that's what we see. 
And, and when you have one without the other, what you get is righteousness that slips into self-righteousness. When the dynamic in your life is this heart repentance, there'll be more and more a soft gentleness about you. Because the fact is, it's not that difficult for most people to avoid the kind of gross public sins that lead someone off a cliff in life. There are lots of people who don't murder anyone and don't steal in any obvious ways and don't um, sleep around and who aren't violent and don't lie and who don't even cheat in their chosen sport. Much. I mean, if the ball moves a little bit in golf, you don't actually have to, you know, take a stroke. It's, it's not like we're playing the Masters or anything. Right? We most, I mean, most people are more or less good on the surface, aren't they? And, and if your vision of what it is to be a Christian is restricted to that sort of important but surface thing, then it's not difficult to imagine such a person slowly becoming more and more arrogant and superior, looking down on those who are violent or thieves, or immoral, and, and in the end you pray a prayer in your heart, you never verbalise it, but you pray a prayer in your heart, something like, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like those other people, thieves, or rogues, or adulterers, I pay my taxes, I help my friends, I give to charity. And you know what Jesus says to a person of that prayer, You go down to your home, not justified. But when repentance is from the heart because sin is from the heart, then it's much less likely that you'll get to that point because it takes an extraordinary level of self-deception to persuade yourself that your heart is pure and clean, don't you think? Even if your behaviour is relatively above board. Do you see? You'll have the resources to be both righteous and not self-righteous. Um, I've said a few times during this series that the, the renovation of our hearts that we're talking about is not like renovating a house. I mean, there's a lot of pain in renovating a house. It takes months, even months, but then it's done. No, no, heart renovation is a lifetime job. Tentacle by tentacle, one by one, prizing the loves of our hearts from over-desiring that which is not God and settling that love upon the true and living God. When you practice this repentance, you'll be attentive to the deep things of your heart and not just the surface things of your behaviour. And therefore, there'll be a softness to you, a gentleness that knows while your externals might be more presentable, your heart is not really that different from anyone else's. You struggle with exactly the same dynamics as others do. The shape of that might be a little more outwardly respectable than for some, but that doesn't fool you for a moment. So there'll be a gentle humility about you, which is not thinking less of yourself, rather it's just thinking of yourself less, often, because you're thinking of Jesus more. But on the other hand, it's really important to, to hear the strength side of this as well, because there are some of us of tender conscience who find all this talk about the heart, it actually sends us into a bit of a tailspin. We know our hearts all too well. And that the prospect of a life of self-examination and seeking to reorder the desires of our hearts can be a little overwhelming. So it's important to say that not only is there a gentleness about us if we practice this heart repentance, but there'll also be a confidence and a strength. 
And it's a reality that Christ is your life that gives you the marvellous gift of a strength not to become obsessed by your disordered heart. It's world-conquering strength and confidence here, not self-confidence, but Jesus' confidence. You don't become absorbed in the darkness and subtlety of your own heart precisely because Jesus has conquered your heart. You've died and you've been raised with him. And the whole point of heart repentance is that we have a vision of Jesus that's bigger than the sin of our own hearts. It's not that seeing yourself helps you see Christ, although there's something of that there. It's rather that seeing Christ helps you to see yourself. And in particular, it's because you see Christ that you don't get lost in yourself. You get lost in him, in his grace and his beauty and his glory. That's why this is not a brittle confidence. It's sort of confidence that goes up and down and waxes and wanes according to your performance this week. Have I lived up to standards or not? Oh, no, I did that again. When the standard is your heart, The answer is miserably clear. Of course, that's what will happen. But the one thing that's even clearer is that since God is for us in the gift of Jesus, because it's God who justifies us, we don't justify ourselves to others or even to ourselves. then you don't need to make all the terrible self-accusations and self-condemnations and self-loathings that so quickly can find their way to the surface. You can just be confident. Your life is hid with Christ. He's your life. It's okay. Nothing can touch you. Immense confidence in life. Immense boldness. With profound humility. Deep gentleness towards others. I think that sounds a lot like Jesus, don't you? Well, we've been a really uh, long way in the series and um, sought to look at what uh, repentance is. We started with love. Repentance starts with the love of God for us in the cross of Christ. And it's only that that's ever really going to change us. It starts with grace. It, it continues in love like that because repentance is turning from sin, which is anything that tends against love, actually. Repentance requires the reordering of our loves, gradually bringing the glory of God's grace in Christ into living connection and so healing our hearts from the inside. And the fruit of this repentance will be a life of really rich, deep, winsome, attractive, beautiful righteousness, both outer and inner, and never self-righteousness. It will be a righteousness that when you see it, you know it's good because it takes the shape of love. And so your life will begin to echo more and more and more the life of the Lord Jesus himself, the one who has captured our hearts. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, to you we lift our hearts in praise and worship for the immensity, the infinite love that you've poured out upon us. And um, as we come uh, to Easter, as we 
uh, take the opportunity to uh, focus, continue to do this deep work of repentance and transformation in our lives. We pray for your glory. Amen.